Hello and welcome to Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy, the podcast where we talk all things hysterectomy related and answer some of the questions that women have as they prepare for the procedure or as they try to come to grips with what had happened to them. My name is Melanie Favut. I'm the author of Never Waste a Good Hysterectomy. In this episode, we talk about all the terminology so that we are clear about what was or will be done during the hysterectomy. But before we go on, please may I remind you that this podcast is intended for information purposes only and must, of course, never replace medical intervention. If you are worried or something just doesn't feel right, please contact your medical provider immediately. My guest today, who is going to help us unpack terminology, is Dr. Kate Chambers. Kate specialized as a gynecologist and obstetrician in 2017 after working for many years in public health and in child health as well. And from a personal experience, I know that Kate is a very empathetic and gentle gynecologist, so I'm really pleased to have her here with us today. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So, you know, there are so much confusions out there about terminology. I regard yeah. myself as fairly clued up. But when I was lying on the theater table and you know how the theater nurse comes to you and says they have to confirm consent for what they are about to do yes, to you. Exactly. So she said a hysterectomy and I said, yes. And then she said an oophorectomy. And I sat up and I was like, hang on, you're doing what? <laughs> but maybe before we get to the medical terminology, no. let's start with the very basics. Just in case, I mean, I know most women will know this, but just in case some of them or some of us missed our sex ed classes at school, sure. <laughs> maybe just quickly run us through ovaries, cervix, uterus, vagina. Sure, no problem. Um, you'd be surprised how many people actually don't know these terms. Um, so it's quite a good thing just to start with. Ovaries are the glands in your pelvis that sit on either side of the uterus, which produce your hormones. So your estrogen, your progesterone and testosterone, which are needed for your regular cycles. Um, and they're also the glands that house your eggs. So um, they're very important for fertility. You have two of them, um, and like I said, they sit on either side of the uterus. Your uterus is the organ or the muscular organ that sits in the pelvis between your bladder and your rectum, um, and it is often referred to as the womb, and it's the, the organ that carries a pregnancy when you do a full pregnant, and it's the organ from which you bleed from. So when you have your monthly cycle, the blood is coming from the uterus. The cervix is the lowest part of the uterus that connects the cavity or the potential space of the uterus to the vagina. And it's often referred to as the mouth of the uterus or the mouth of the womb. The vagina itself is a muscular canal that extends from the outside of your body, so from the, the vulva to the inside, and it spans up to connect the vulva to the uterus. And the other thing that we also talk about are your fallopian tubes. Mm. Uh, your fallopian tubes are the little tubes that connect the uterus to the ovaries, which carry a potential egg or potential um, fertility issues, and they go from the ovary through the tube into the, the uterus to meet the sperm. Okay, so what is a oophorectomy? So an oophorectomy is a procedure where we essentially remove an ovary. So you can have a unilateral or a bilateral, so where we take out one of the ovaries or both of the ovaries, and that would be the term oophorectomy. And it's done for a number of reasons, but I think we're going to chat about that a bit later. Okay, and what do you call it when you remove the cervix? 
So when you remove the cervix, it's called a trachelectomy, which is a bit strange because it doesn't have the word cervix in it, but it can also be called a cervicectomy. The trachelectomy is where we remove the cervix as well as some of the surrounding tissue, as well as some of the, the upper third of the vagina. And it's normally done for patients who have a low-grade cervical cancer in young patients who are trying to conserve their uterus. So haven't been able to have babies yet or are still wanting to have more babies, um, but we need surgery to remove the cancer. So they just remove the cervix so that the, the uterus is preserved for future fertility. So strictly speaking, what is a hysterectomy? What does that refer to? Strictly speaking, a hysterectomy refers to removing the uterus. Essentially, it's actually just removing the uterus. And then you add on terminology to say whether you're removing other parts of the female organs. So a hysterectomy would be taking out the uterus. A total hysterectomy would be taking out the uterus as well as the cervix. You can do a subtotal hysterectomy where you remove just the uterus and leave the cervix in. And then if you're going to take out the uterus with the tubes, it's called a hysterectomy with a salpingectomy, which is the terminology for removing the tubes. And then if you're adding on removing an ovary, it would be an oophorectomy. So hysterectomy on its own is just the uterus. And then as you take out more of the, the tubes or the ovaries or the cervix, you add on some terminology. And so when people talk about a radical hysterectomy, they mean everything, right? Yes. So a radical hysterectomy is actually a little bit more than everything, if that's possible. <laughs> but it's, it's taking out the uterus, the cervix, the ovaries, the tubes, as well as all of the ligaments that essentially keep the uterus in place. So there's three big ligaments that are used to help stabilize the uterus in the pelvis. And these are your round ligament, your broad ligament, and your uterosacral ligaments. So what they do is they take those ligaments with the uterus, and they also take um, a third of the vagina out. And this is done for certain cervical cancers and some endometrial cancers, just to be sure that they get everything out. So this is when women talk about their vaginas getting shorter and they experience yes. different sensations during sex. Yes, um, exactly. So the one thing that women talk about endlessly when they've had their cervix removed is the cuff. Tell yes. me about the cuff. <laughs> so the cuff is essentially looking at the vaginal cuff. As I've explained earlier, when you've got your uterus, it's connected to the vagina by the cervix, which is essentially a muscular tube. Now, if we take that tube out of the vagina, it leaves a hole, um, which is a connection, which shouldn't be there between the outside, so your vulva and your vagina and your, your abdomen, so the inside of your abdomen. So what they do is, is where you've removed the cervix from the vagina, they sew that little section of the vagina together. So it would be like a little purse so that you have a blind ending tube um, or a blind ending vagina, should I say, and the top end, which has been sewed, is called the cuff. Usually with, I mean, I presume always, not usually, with um, dissolvable stitches, right? Yes, yes, of course. Because there's always a question, yes, about yes. that. Yes, so, so depending on the surgeon, um, some surgeons do um, dissolve, well, everybody, everybody who puts sutures in does dissolvable sutures, um, but some surgeons will leave little gaps in that cuff, um, depending on the surgery that they've done, just to allow any excess blood or fluid to come out of the vagina. So women who who are post-hysterectomy, post 
mustn't be concerned in the beginning when they have some fluid coming out of the vagina. It's actually quite a good thing because it means that that fluid is not building up in the abdomen and can't cause problems and become infected. Um, so it kind of just depends on the surgeon who's doing the surgery and the reason for the surgery as well. And that's something that you can chat to your surgeon about. So on the terminology, there are yes. different ways, of course, of doing hysterectomies, right? Yes. Can you explain yes. the different types? There's three different types of hysterectomy. The first one, which is the one that's been around forever, is the abdominal hysterectomy or open hysterectomy. And essentially what that means is we make a small incision on the abdomen, just like you would for a cesarean section, and go into the abdomen and open up the abdomen so that we can see the uterus, see the, the tubes, the ovaries, and remove it through the opening in the abdomen. The next step would be something called a vaginal hysterectomy, which is a similar procedure in that you still have cutting. So you've still got an incision, but the incision is through the vagina rather than the abdomen. So there's no abdominal scars, but the surgery is done through the vagina and the uterus is removed through the vagina and then the vagina is sutured up to form that cuff again. And then we've got laparoscopic surgery, which is, you know, I'd like to say new, but it's actually been quite around for quite a long time. All the techniques are getting better and better as we go along. And laparoscopic surgery is where we take cameras through little holes or little ports in the abdomen to look inside. And we use instruments that go through these ports. And those instruments allow us to do the operation without having to do a big incision on the abdomen. So essentially what would happen is the first incision is made just in the belly button. And then you have four or five other one to two centimeter incisions around the abdomen where the other ports would be inserted. The robotic surgery is essentially the same as a laparoscopic where we use ports and instruments that go through the ports into the abdomen, but it's done by a robot and not by the surgeons itself. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds, <laughs> sounds interesting. Yeah, sounds it's scary. very scary and futuristic, but that's the way of the future. So we'll see how that how that space turns out. I presume there are benefits in some of them in terms of recovery time, right? Yes. Some would yes. have less. And I mean it's I also wanted to just say, of course, with the open abdominal surgery, there's also the option of a vertical or a horizontal cut, yes. right? Yes. So that would depend on the reason for the hysterectomy. So if you are removing the uterus for cancer or for a big abdominal mass, then obviously you're going to do the incision that um, gives you the most access into the abdomen. So a vertical incision, which would be from the belly button to the, the symphysis pubis, that would allow you to get a little bit more access into the abdomen. So it would depend on the indication for the surgery as to whether they do a vertical or a horizontal. And then in terms of recovery time, I presume laparoscopic and vaginal is less Much than better. the open. Mm. Yes, yes. So, you know, there's different reasons to do one of the three surgeries, and it, it depends on you, it depends on your surgeon, it depends on the indication. But essentially, an open procedure has the longest recovery because you are disrupting the muscles, opening up the cavity, and you've got a big incision on your abdomen. So um, we equate it to the time it would heal from a cesarean section. So it's your time in theater is a little bit longer, your time in hospitals a little bit longer, and your recovery time we normally say is around about six weeks. 
Whereas if you're doing a vaginal um, or laparoscopic procedure, because it's less invasive, you have a much quicker hospital stay and much quicker recovery time. And you're looking probably at about, you know, three to four weeks rather than a six week recovery. You mentioned earlier that if there is a big mass or if cancer is suspected, that usually doctors go for open yes. um, and abdominal surgery because yes. they are worried, apart from the access now, they are also yes. worried about a thing called seeding. Am I right? Yes, yes, totally, uh, totally correct. Seeding is essentially when you have a cancerous mass, those cancer cells are tiny. And if there's any spread of those little cancer cells into the abdomen, there's a possibility of them causing cancer somewhere else in the abdomen. So if you've got a big ovarian mass or you're worried about ovarian cancer or uterine cancer or any of those, those sorts of things, an open procedure gives you a little bit more control over how you remove the mass. And by that, I mean, you can take it out whole without puncturing it or trying to get, you know, make it smaller because with laparoscopic surgery or vaginal surgery, the ports that you are trying to get the mass out of are obviously very small. So we try and do that just to prevent any spread of cancerous cells that we can't see into the rest of the abdomen. So basically, you don't want anything to chip off, even the slightest yes, bit. Yes, exactly, in the process. exactly. Yeah. So yeah, chip off, or you know, with a lot of the tricky things is that with with cancerous masses, they can have fluid in them, um, mm. and if you burst that cyst or that fluid bubble, that fluid can go everywhere, and you have less chance of doing that when you have an open procedure because there's other methods that you can do by putting swabs underneath the mass to try and pick up any over like any spill. So it's just a, a much safer procedure. And just on the topic, um, the omentum or part yes. of it is often removed when cancer is suspected. Yes. Can you explain what it is and why? So the omentum is essentially a, a fold of fatty tissue that covers all of your internal organs. And it's a protective mechanism that the body has come up with. It sits over your gut and it prevents your gut from twisting. And it also is infiltrated with lymph nodes and blood vessels, which help to supply the organs as well as protect the organs. And the reason why it's often removed through something called an omentectomy is because if there is any risk of spread, because the omentum is so vast in the abdomen covering the whole pelv um, the whole abdominal cavity, and because of the lymph nodes and the vessels, there's quite quick spread if it gets into the omentum. So we remove part of it or the whole of the omentum to make sure that there's no spread. It also allows your oncologist and your pathologist to stage certain cancers because if cancers have spread into the omentum, it allows us to upstage you or downstage you depending on what they find. So it's, yeah, it was explained to me that this is the place where cancer cells love to go and hide. Yes, so exactly. You, that's why sort of preemptively to take that, that away. Exactly, preemptively take it out because you can't, you can't see them when they're in there. So it's mm. just, it's like their fun playground that we remove. Just on ovarian growth specifically, yeah. my own experience was that from one gynecological visit to a year later that this massive ovarian growth had formed, it really puzzled me as to why I didn't feel any symptoms. Yeah. But I understand that ovarian, specifically ovarian growth and tumors are very silent and often yes. without symptoms. Yes. And that's one of the, the trickiest parts of gynecology is that ovarian cancer is 
often only found when it's stage four because of that exact reason that it's it goes silent for so long and it doesn't have any symptoms. Um, it, it's one of our, you know, the tricky parts of our job. And that's why we say we need to see you regularly so that we can do ultrasounds every time we see you every year to look for um, cysts and masses and things that might have changed. It's, it's difficult in the fact that there's no other way that we can screen for ovarian masses. The, some, some ovarian masses do present with symptoms. So if you get a cyst, it can cause abnormal bleeding. It can cause pain, um, change in your hormones, all those sorts of things. And then obviously, if you have any of those symptoms, it's good to get checked out. But unfortunately, it's, yeah, I, I don't know really what to say in that regular checkups are just so important. Mm. Um, the, the problem with with cysts as well is that often we find them and they don't cause problems. So you find them as an incidental, but then we get concerned and then we intervene and all those sorts of things. And then sometimes we don't find them. And then when we do, it's too late. So it's quite a tricky area in gynecology, unfortunately. I laughed because I asked repeatedly all the surgeons that I saw and I went like, how is it possible that I didn't feel anything yes. and how come there wasn't pressure on my other organs? Yes. And they said that the interesting thing is about that kind of growth in that area is that our organs are particularly polite as women. Exactly. That they make space <laughs> because they're assuming that there's a pregnancy coming so a they politely allow space and it takes a long time before there is pain. Exactly. exactly. You mentioned a lot of um, reasons to have hysterectomies. Do you yes. want to just mention some some of the other reasons? Sure. Presume, fibroids, sure. etc. Sure. So that, yeah, so there's a lot of reasons, obviously cancer being one of the main reasons that we, we remove uteruses and ovaries, but there are a lot of non-malignant or benign reasons. One of them being, as you said, a fibroid uterus. So if you've got lots of fibroids and you're not trying to have a pregnancy and they're causing pressure and symptoms and pain, then we can remove it. The other reasons are for people who have abnormal bleeding, who are not responding to any medication, who have tried certain things like intrauterine devices and hormonal treatment, but still have persistent abnormal bleeding. One of the finite treatments is to remove the uterus. And obviously we don't do that in young patients, but for older patients who are heading towards menopause or have completed their families in a hysterectomy is an option. So it would be mostly for abnormal bleeding, endometriosis, so severe pain, anything, any growths in the uterus, like a fibroid or any cancers. But it is important to say that it, it always remains fairly major surgery, right? So it's yes, always just no, done definitely. as a last resort, right? Definitely. So it's definitely a last resort. And there are a lot of other um, managements that can be used before we get to the point of doing a hysterectomy. But obviously that depends on what the cause is. So, you know, if we're looking at cancer, you know, often the only treatment is a hysterectomy because you want to get rid of the cancer. Um, having said that, there are some low-grade endometrial cancers that you can treat with other medication um, and monitor very, very closely. But this is, you know, that's rare and not often done. But if you've got abnormal bleeding, if you've got fibroids, there's hormonal treatment that you can use, there's intrauterine devices, there's other procedures like ablation techniques where we essentially burn the lining of the uterus so that you don't have 
an area to bleed from, which can help with abnormal bleeding. So there's always a choice and there's always other options that you can go through before getting to a hysterectomy. As you said, you know, surgery is always major and always has potential for complications. So we always try and treat with less invasive methods before we get to surgery. And yet sometimes women feel a little bit pressurized to having yeah, hysterectomies. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, how much choice do we have? And also what are the kind of tests should we ask for before we make a final decision on that? You know, it's tricky as a doctor to hear that people feel pressurized because you always hope that you're not trying to persuade someone to have a procedure that's unnecessary. But we all know that there are certain doctors who will follow one path rather than others. Some people have a preferred method. You know, some people like intrauterine devices, some people don't. So it's all very much doctor dependent. And I, I do feel that if you don't feel comfortable with the decisions that your doctor is making, it's always a good idea to seek a second opinion um, so that you don't feel pressurized into, into having a surgery that is major and can have, have you know, serious consequences. When it comes to the tests that you should be asking for, once again, it kind of depends on the underlying cause and the, the concerns that you have and, and the pathology that you have and why we are suggesting a hysterectomy. So all gynecologists that I know of will do a transvaginal ultrasound scan. Whenever you go for your routine visits, they do these ultrasounds so that we can have a good look at the uterus, look at the ovaries, look at the bladder, see if there's any masses, anything that needs to be removed, have a good look at the anatomy. Depending on what we find, there are other tests that you can do, especially further scans. So CT scans or MRI scans of the pelvis are also very helpful, especially when you've got a big mass. And the reason for that is it allows us to look at the surrounding organs a lot better. It gives you a good look at the lymph nodes. It gives you a look at the rectum, the bladder, to see whether there's any potential you know, potential harm that surgery might cause to the other organs. Blood tests are difficult because no one blood test is going to say whether, you know, you should have a hysterectomy or not. The, the blood tests that we generally do prior to surgery or when we are looking at possible surgery would be your iron, your hemoglobin, kidney function, liver function, just to make sure that you're a good surgical candidate. Because that's another thing to look at when you're looking at surgery is, I don't want to go and do a surgery on someone who is not going to handle the anesthetic well or is not going to recover well. So you need to make sure that the patient is a good candidate. The CA125 or the tumor markers, so the other tumor markers that we use in gynecology a lot are CA125, alpha-fetoprotein, and beta-HEG. Um, and the beta-HEG does confuse people a lot because it is the, the pregnancy hormone. But in our ovaries, we have lots of different cells that can produce different things. So different hormones, different types of cancers. And those tumor markers are a good stepping point for when you find someone with an ovarian mass, because those then heighten your awareness and say, okay, those are a bit raised. Do we go and um, classify this as cancer? Are we concerned about this? Do we need to take it out? Or if they're normal, don't have to worry about it. We can go and see you again in six months' time and follow up. Just to go back to the ultrasound, the transvaginal ultrasound, whenever you have a pelvic mass or an ovarian mass, there are algorithms and certain protocols that we follow 
on what we see on the ultrasound. So depending on what the mass looks like, how big it is, whether it has a solid area or a fluid area, whether there's fluid in the pelvis, all of those things we put into a program which comes out with a, a risk of malignancy, should I say. So it's, it tells us, okay, with all of these features, doesn't look malignant. With all of these features does look malignant. And then we can go from there. So there's, there's a lot of pre-testing that we can do before we jump straight to, to surgery. Yes, I went through that algorithm and I can the imagine. longest few seconds sitting there. Shame. Happy outcome. Shame. Um, the one question that women ask a lot, and I have to say, I also was quite troubled by this, was yes. if they have now, if you guys have now removed everything, the uterus, the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, what is there? Is there just one big vacuum or big hole um, inside mm. of you? What happens in that open space? So very common question. Um, and like you said earlier, the female body is very forgiving and very polite. So it, it's not a, you don't have a vacuum, you don't have a hole. Essentially what happens is the pelvic area becomes filled with your bowel. So your bowel is essentially a long tube of muscular tissue that is I'm not going to, I probably get this wrong, but about two meters long or something like that. And that essentially just fills that area. So you don't have a vacuum. You don't have an open space. It just gets filled by the bladder, the rectum and the bowel. So it's filled by the other organs, essentially. Kate, thank you so much for taking us through this, this maze of terminology. My thanks also to Nicola Bruns for producing this podcast. And above all, thank you to you for listening. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me on hysterectomypodcast at gmail.com. I'm Milani Favut. Until next time, stay strong and stay brave. 